Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize me as the host of what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week I have the honor and privilege of interviewing best-selling authors and business titans and oftentimes celebrities around leadership topics. And after four years and hundreds of episodes and millions and millions and millions and millions of views and listens, what we learned is, is that often it isn't the biggest celebrity or four-star general that has the most interesting episode, although they do, or the most downloads. It was often the people like you and I and today's guests that had relatable career trajectories. And so with that interest and information, we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where each week we interview remarkable people, including today's guest, Sally Sussman, who serves as the EVP and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer. Joining us from New York City, Sally, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Hey, I'm delighted you're here because the timing is excellent. It just so happens that today we're releasing this episode on the heels of the new release of your book called Breaking Through. We'll talk about that just over your shoulder. We'll talk about the book in just a few moments. Sally, you've had a remarkable career. I mean, talk about your work at Pfizer, the time before that at Estee Lauder. You spent nearly a decade on Capitol Hill working in a previous administration as a, uh, a deputy, I think, assistant uh, uh, secretary for legislative affairs, broad history and communications, negotiation, civil discourse. We'll talk about those things. Would you reorient our listeners and viewers today to just that career? How did you end up as the chief corporate affairs officer at Pfizer from this remarkable career prior to that? Sure, thank you so much. Like a lot of people, I wanted to make a positive difference in the world. And so I started my career in government, thinking that that would be the best place from which to do good. And after many years on Capitol Hill, my great accomplishment was changing in legislative language an or to an and. And while legally that can be significant, uh, emotionally it wasn't all that gratifying. And I thought that government moves more slowly than I, I wished. And I had a theory that you could do a lot of good if you were with a large, forward-facing, publicly engaged company and I've had the pleasure to work at three. I started at American Express, spent several years there, both in New York and London, then moved to Estee Lauder companies, and then 15 years ago, moved to Pfizer. And I've really loved working at companies that care about their engagement with stakeholders, that operate very much in the public frame. And I am feeling very fortunate to have been able to have this journey. Sally, let's talk about your role in the culture at Pfizer. Obviously, the pandemic is behind us, by and large. There's different opinions on to vax or not to vax. I had four myself from the Moderna. That's what was given to me. There are still lots of opinions on the efficacy of the vaccine, mostly very positive and with a spirit of gratitude. Some obviously disagree with that. Someone's opinion on the vaccine aside, First of all, I want to thank you personally as a citizen, as a father, as a spouse for the unprecedented efforts that were put into developing a vaccine in record speed, allowing the world economy to get back on track. And 
companies to start reopening and people to mourn their loved ones without fearing the own loss of their life. I'd like to talk about the speed at which these pharmaceutical companies developed this vaccine. And what have you learned about that agility, that nimbleness, that collaboration, the transparency of information that has stayed in the culture of Pfizer? What would you like for us to know about how all that worked and what, is, and what can companies learn from the success of that progress and how they might organize their own systems, strategies, communication level of transparency in their companies? Sure. So it was just about three years ago, right now, right. March of 2020, when the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. And if you remember back, Scott, I mean, it was a scary time. I was here in New York and things were closing down. There were refrigerated trucks doubling as morgues. And my boss, Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, called us into the executive committee room, probably much like the rooms your, your listeners sit in. And he said, we, got, we have to do three things. First, we need to take care of our 85,000 colleagues around the world, make sure they're safe and secure. Second, we need to maintain the medical supply chain. And if you think about it, during the pandemic, it was hard to get a refrigerator, you couldn't get a car, but you could get your medicine. And that was really important because cancer didn't take a break during the pandemic. Other terrible illnesses didn't take a break. And my CEO said one other thing as well. He said, we will bring forward a vaccine by the end of the year. And honestly, when I heard him say that, I thought, oh my gosh, has he lost his mind? This seems impossible. It's something that typically takes 12 years and we're gonna try to do it in eight months. He then did the next thing, which was to assign a project manager. And in all my years in, in corporate life, you rarely see what happened next. The CEO assigned himself to be the project manager. And in doing so was the first step in my belief that we were going to do something radically different. Additionally, we took a process that has always been linear, drug development. First, you know, you have a little discovery in the lab and then you begin to test it, you test it again, you think about whether there's a, a real value to patients, you begin a regulatory um, dossier. If the regulatory dossier goes well, you start clinical trials. At the end of the clinical trials, you decide whether you're gonna manufacture this. You then start to reconfigure your lines, you buy raw materials. What we did, during the pandemic is we started to do all of those things immediately and began preparing to produce and distribute this vaccine before we even knew if it worked. And it required Pfizer to put $2 billion at risk. Um, but you know, we, we figured that if we failed, the, the problem would be bigger than a, a financial loss. So it was through this radically different way of working, what we internally called Project Lightspeed, that allowed us to do in eight months what typically takes 12 years. So now, where are we going forward? You don't wanna go back to the old way of working once you've been through something spectacular like this. So we have new projects. We continue to have a, a singular person in charge. We're crushing our own bureaucracy. Um, we just announced this past week that we're taking our profits from COVID and investing them now 
in a second moonshot to try to cure cancer. So once you get a taste of this kind of, you know, amazing stress and delivery and feelings of accomplishment, it becomes part of the culture. We're so proud. You know, still we walk around and people say, thank you. It will be thank you for the vaccine that allowed me to see my grandchild after two years. Thanks for the vaccine that let me go back to college and finish my, my college career on campus. So as I think is inherent in your question, Scott, you must know that once a company goes through something like that, and once the people of the company live through this kind of experience, you just wanna keep doing more of it. Sally, there's so much to unpack there. You know, depending upon someone's state they live in, their politics, their narrative, the belief systems they may have had inculcated in them from birth by their parents or doctors or whatever, people have different opinions on, of course, the severity of the pandemic and the efficacy of, of vaccines. But let us not forget that a million people perished in America alone from this vaccine. I personally know two people, a member of Franklin Covey's board of directors, Michael Fung, who was the former CFO of Walmart, passed away in great health in his 60s from COVID. I, I, I wanna thank you and all your colleagues for all of the vitriol you've had thrown your way, for all of the tireless, countless nights you spent trying to figure out your messaging and making sure it aligned with or whatever was best you thought for your customers and humanity because you had lots of people like the CDC and the NIH, you know, sharing different kinds of information. But it gets to this point that is a passion of yours and you write about it in Breakthrough and that is your passion about clarity. Uh, Brene Brown, the famous author and researcher and psychologist, talks that, um, you know, clear is kind. That to be clear is to be kind. And you, as a communications expert, know a lot about this, that brief and clear is super important in a leadership role of any capacity, at any level. Would you share with us some of the insights from your remarkable career in Washington, D.C., American Express, Estee Lauder, now decade-plus at Pfizer? What are some of the foundational principles that all leaders should be reminded of when it comes to clarity in communication. You just had, you got a PhD on this in the pandemic, right? I'm sure you made some missteps and I'm sure you had some triumphs. Revisit some of those pieces around the importance of clarity as a leader. There's, there's so much I wanna say in response to this, but first, please let me say how sorry I am for the loss of your board member and friend. Um, the pandemic took so many lives and it still is a tremendous amount of grieving and mourning that's yeah. going on. Um, I feel fortunate that I also learned a great deal during this time and principles that I had been thinking about and honing over a lifetime, as you say, in politics and business, they really crystallized for me during the pandemic when we were under the, the crucible of this pressure to deliver. And I thought to myself, it will be so tragic if we develop a life-saving vaccine that people don't have the confidence to take. And of course, it was a crazy moment in the early days when half the world was dying to get the vaccine and would do anything to get it. And you had another half that were afraid or lacked confidence. And so part of what was in my role was to try to bridge uh, this misunderstandings and, and concerns. And I learned a great deal along the way. And, I always assumed, Scott, that data 
and expertise would win the day. And certainly it's crucially important to have the facts, to have the data, to have the scientific leaders. But in the end, what has made the most positive difference has been storytelling by the teacher, the preacher, the neighbor, the barber, people who shared their stories of reconnecting, of their experiences with the vaccines. Oftentimes it was within families that these conversations were resolved. Um, so I'm very grateful to all the people who sort of leaned into this. I mean, it became a national conversation that we were at the heart of. And I did bring uh, many core principles to bear that are in the book. The first one, and, and a crucial one, is about being very intentional in your communications, really knowing why you're saying it, why are you sitting down and talking. I certainly thought that about it for a minute or two before you and I started talking. What I, I hope to convey is very important. And candor and clarity, as you say, messages that cut through and touch people. During the pandemic, we had an advertising campaign titled Science Will Win. Not Pfizer will win, but science will win. We often said the only enemy is the virus. And like most industries where you have your guests come from, pharmaceuticals is also very competitive and we all want to you know, be the best. But during the pandemic, we really worked together and collaborated like we never had before. So I've taken basic principles of communications and then kind of power tested them through the pandemic and then wrote them down in the book. Sally, take this a step further. Uh, let's talk about, can you over-communicate? I was interviewing someone a week ago and they said, you know, not every, not every speech you give is a TED talk, right? Not every speech you have has the gravity of a TED level talk, that you have conversations, you have, you know, moments where you're a leader and you're just talking, but people are listening maybe more than you think they are. It reminds me of, you know, during the pandemic, the Trump administration should get credit, I think, for their work on Operation Warp Speed. Regardless of your politics, pro or con of the administration, I think they did some great things around helping to fund the vaccination and such. By the way, so should Dolly Parton and many other people that put money into this as well, right? Everyone loves Dolly. But one of the things that frustrated me about President Trump was I feel like he talked too much. I think he like he over communicated and he said kind of what was on his mind. And I think sometimes he was his own biggest enemy by maybe pulling back and letting the expert speak. He I think sometimes over communicated and and the and the result created some confusion. Someone's preference for his administration and style aside, do you think someone can over communicate? I think you can under communicate. Is there a case when less is more? Sure, sure. And you're right, by the way, um, Operation Warp Speed did do many things and deserves credit uh, for helping advancing our, um, you know, our work against COVID as an industry. But you're making a really subtle and important point. You can over communicate. And I advocate for two things. The first is to make sure you're a good listener, um, not a listener who's distracted or not a listener who's preparing the rebuttal against what you're saying, but a listener who really has an open ears, open minds, open heart to want to know and understand what someone else is saying. 
The second related idea to can you over-communicate is something I write about called the importance of a pause. And a pause is a beat, it's a breath, it's a comma, it's not a full stop. But so often I see leaders fail to pause and just plow through a conversation or give a speech that they don't really, they're not really present for, they're just reading as fast as they can. You know, sometimes when I've written speeches in the past for executives or, or government leaders, you know, I literally put in brackets, pause for laughter. Um, because otherwise, you know, you miss the joke because you're just running so fast. It's also a common mistake I've seen um, executives make in media interviews. They will get a question from a journalist, they'll give their answer, and then the journalist will be quiet because it's a, it's a great journalistic trick because most people feel anxious. They, they don't stop. They keep, and then they keep talking and saying things they don't really want to say. So your question is rooted in a really fundamental um, value of mine to make sure to understand the incoming and to pause and have the confidence to speak calmly, uh, methodically, clearly, and not over babble and over communicate. Sally, you're a member of the LGBTQ plus I community. You talk about this in your new book about when you actually discussed your sexuality with your parents at a time when that exactly wasn't in vogue and quite frankly was quite dangerous and even ostracizing. Um, what's to be learned from other people who may not feel like they have a seat at the table, they have a voice, they have an identity that is being accepted in their company, their team, their community, their family. Any lessons that you want to share now in a very different time when perhaps this was, I'm sure, a traumatic struggle for you? Because back when you were wrestling with this, with your family, it wasn't even close to the way society is now, more inclusive. Uh, what would you say to people that maybe are facing a similar challenge in their family or company? What, what would you say to buoy them, to validate them, to give them some power to their voice? Thank you, Scott, for giving me the, the window here to talk about this. It, it's very important to me. And as you say, I, I came out to my parents um, when I was in my early 20s, in the early 1980s. And it feels sometimes funny to talk about it now because things are so different. It's almost hard to remember. But it wasn't that long ago, but it was a very different world in terms of um, what LGBTQ plus I people experienced at the time. So I went home to my hometown, St. Louis. I sat down with my mom and dad, with whom I'm you know, very close to, and I knew it was gonna be bad, and it was. It was horrible. Um, you know, uh, my mom was mad, my dad cried. Um, it was an extremely fraught and emotional conversation. I remember my dad, who is a man I deeply admire, through his tears, saying to me, you will never have a spouse, you'll never have children, nor will you have a career. And he didn't intend to hurt me, though those words were hurtful to hear. He was essentially expressing his fears as, as he thought my life would be you know, very diminished um, based on his life experience. 
And in that moment, my life plan crystallized. I, I knew I, I didn't know what job I'd have. I didn't know where I'd live, but I knew I needed those three things more than anything. I'm now with the same woman I've been with for 35 years. We have a bright and brilliant 28-year-old daughter, and you know I'm very happy with my career. So um, that courage and the candor um, ended up forging for me a life plan, and a, not only a life plan, but a way to live, to live as openly and authentically and real as I can be. And I do want to urge all of your, your listeners, if there's something that you're harboring, whether it's a, a personal um, revelation like mine or a, a belief or an ambition or a dream or an emotion, have the courage for your candor. You know, don't let the love letter die in your outbox. Don't let the apology be choked in your throat. Whatever it is you need to say, say it. Because I'm really confident that whatever short-term or mid-term pain you may go through, you will be rewarded in the long-term with feelings of peace and pride. I, I'm very passionate on this point. Sally, your book is breaking through. It's just been released. In many ways, it's a life manual. It's a manual about being true to yourself. It's very raw. It's very vulnerable. It's a treatise on, on having patience, on finding commonality, on uh, having civil discourse. It pulls from your corporate career, your political career as an advisor in the White House. Uh, thank you for your time today. Congrats on your book release. Best of success to you and your career as well, and I appreciate you joining us today. You serve currently as the EVP and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer. Best of success to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>